0: Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter nine. 1 Corinthians chapter nine, we're gonna pick up in verse 26 in a few moments. The discipline of the Christian life, part two. We started this the last time. The discipline of the Christian life. The context of what we're looking at is very clear. It's relationships. Our Christian life is directly measured by the way we relate to one another. In other words, if a person's walking with God, then he's gonna be rightly related to his brother in Christ within the body of Christ. In fact, we're gonna see this in chapter 12, and we're not trying to preempt it, but God, when he came to live in us in the person of his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, came bearing gifts. Those gifts were so that we could minister and build up one another. It was for unity, it was for oneness, it was never for divert, divert, division, <laughs> uh, d- d- I started to say diversity, but it's always diverse. It's never for division, nor is it for any kind of contention. Matter of fact, when you see a person walking with Christ, surrendered to Him, learning what we're talking about in chapter nine, the discipline of denying himself, you're gonna see that person seeking for the unity of the brethren at whatever cost it cost him. It's like Ephesians four in verse three says, That you were to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace. This is what the body of church is. This is what gives one another the benefit of the doubt. This is what causes a person to take the low road for the sake of another. This is God working in and through an individual's life. When that person is not doing that, maybe he's playing a game, maybe he wants people to think he's one way but he's not another, watch relationships. If he's there backbiting, behind somebody's back, grumbling, griping, whatever it is, any kind of division comes, that comes from the flesh. Our relationship with Christ is measured, not by how much we know, not by how well we think we're doing, it's in our relationships to one another. The Church of Corinth needed to hear this message. Division was rampant on every part. They were attached to everything but Jesus. Some are of Paul, some are of Paulus, some are of Cephas, as we have seen in the previous months in studying this epistle. The context of chapter eight and nine is interesting. It has to do with the stronger brother. By, by stronger we mean the brother that has come to understand the message of grace. He understands his place. He knows who he is. He knows whose he is. He knows what he is. He knows his direction in life. He understands the message of grace. And it's it's in the context of the stronger to the weaker brother. The weaker brother, been defined already, that person doesn't understand, doesn't understand grace. The problem was the stronger brother that understood the truth was not sensitive to the weaker brother who hadn't understood the truth. Therefore, the stronger brother used his liberty as a stumbling block to the weaker brother rather than surrendering his own rights and privileges, denying himself for the sake of Christ and the sake of that weaker brother. That's the whole context. You see, once we've had the high privilege of understanding the message of grace, now comes the responsibility. We have the greater responsibility. The more we understand about grace, the greater our responsibility to live up under it and to make sure that reflects itself in the relationships we have around us. Paul gives his own example in chapter 9. An apostle had the right to be supported by the churches, but he knew that some people had problems with that, and so he had given up that right. He had gone to tent making to make his own living just so that more and more people could come to know Christ. He even talks about how he became a Jew uh, to the Jews, and he would get back up under the law if necessary to the Gentiles, he became as the Gentiles, to whatever, whatever it cost him to let Christ in his life be presented through him was worth it to the Apostle Paul. He had learned the discipline of denying himself for the sake of Christ and the sake of others. Well, he comes down to verse 24 through 27 and he puts the whole summary of, the, of everything he's been saying into a context they could not miss. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now in verse 24, this concept is the concept of the, the Isthmian games. They had these track meets like outside the city of Corinth every so many years, like the Olympian games. They were called the Isthmian games. Corinth sitting on that little isthmus there that connected the two land masses of Greece. And everybody was familiar with it. Athletes came from all over the world to win that coveted wreath and all the fame that went along with it. They understood these games. They saw them come into town early. They saw the sweat and smell the sweat. And they saw these athletes training and punishing their bodies so that when they ran that day of the race that, that they could win the prize. You see, running like the Christian life, what Paul is trying to help them to see is an individual sport. How many of you, how many guys in here have played some kind of competitive sport sometime in the past? Okay, you know what I'm talking about. If it was a team sport, it's not just up to you, it's up to five of you, or how many is on the team? 11 if it's football, or whatever. And the more each one puts out, each one of them, it's dependent on each one of them, so the five make up a team. But in an individual sport, it's different. Like golf or anything else that we have today, running's the same way. It didn't depend on anybody else how a runner runs you had to run based on your own willingness to make the, to pay the price. And so when you finished at the finish line, you couldn't blame anybody for the way you ran. It's an individual sport. Just like the Christian life is an individual choice that you and I have to make. That's what Paul has been saying in all of his teaching in Corinthians. He's been trying to help them to see. You can't live your life based on me. You've got to live your life based on your own choices. When we stand before God one day, he tells them, he says, you're not going to stand with me. You're going to stand by yourself. You want your work to stand there. The work that Christ did through you as a result of your surrender to him. Runners could encourage one another, but they couldn't make decisions for that person. That person had to make his own decisions, paying his own price, willing to discipline his own body. If he wanted to win that prize. Well, Paul says, his whole point is, in the context, if you're going to be sensitive to your weaker brother, if you're going to see relationships manifest in the body of Christ like they ought to be, then individually we must discipline ourselves to deny self for the sake of Christ and the sake of others. Now, you say, wait, I don't understand what you're talking about. Think about the last week in your life. What circumstances came to you? You know you were right. You know you saw something that others did not see, but because they were weaker and could not see it, you were willing to die to it in order that they might see what God wanted them to see. That happens over and over and over again in our life. God orchestrates those situations. We're given opportunities every day to die to ourself and once we learn the discipline of denying self, then we begin to understand the urgency of living the Christian life. Paul being the master teacher that he was, after showing them the concept, the concept is the Olympian games, the Isthmian games, showing them the runners and how they came into town preparing to win that prize. Then he moves on and he begins to allude to comparisons between the runner and the Christian. He doesn't actually bring out the comparison But the comparison just teaches itself. And let's look, verse 24 and follow. We'll just follow along as we read together. Verse 24, he shows a difference in the reward of a runner and that of a believer. He says in verse 24, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now in the races at Corinth, there was only one prize. That was it, that was tough. Every one of them came, they trained just as earnestly, only one of them could win the prize and you don't wanna start thinking of it that way in the Christian life. If you do, you're gonna start competing with everybody around you. Thank God we don't have to compete with each other. We encourage one another, pray for one another, and when you live denying yourself and I live denying myself, we both get a reward and we can give us a high five when we get up there and give the reward back to Jesus. That's what the Christian life's supposed to be. Well, it's different than the Christian life, than it is in the runner. A runner only has one prize. Each of us have a reward as we get there. He's already shown this in chapter three, verse 14. He says, if your work remains, you shall receive a reward. There's no competition whatsoever. If we compete with one another, we lose because there is no competition. We're just in it together and encourage one another, equip one another, everybody gets a reward that learns the discipline of denying themselves. Well, in verse 25, he moves again to a a, a similarity, goes from a difference to a similarity. He says in verse 25, and everyone who competes in the games. Now that word compete is the word agonizome. You know that word, we get the word agony from it. Any athlete knows the pain that he had to, the, the price that he had to pay of that pain if he's gonna win anything, if he's gonna discipline his body. I remember when I was playing football in military school I played football, basketball, and ran track. I should have just, uh, I didn't want to carry a rifle. But when we played football, the coach would say, now guys, you're going to have to pay a price. You're going to have to pay a price if you're going to, if you're going to be good. And of course, at meals every day, they'd give us all we wanted to eat. Well, one day they had hot dogs. <laughs> I love hot dogs. The only thing better than a hot dog is another hot dog. I love hot dogs. <laughs> I just love them. I mean, some people like certain things. I just love hot dogs. I love them. I love those big old quarter pounder hot dogs, you know, the big... Kinds you can really get in your mouth. I mean, not these little dinky kinds. I like those kinds. And you know, they just gave, so I ate five hot dogs. Well, I didn't realize that the coach was checking us out to see how many hot dogs we'd eat because we were in training. And when you're in training, you deny yourself certain pleasures. Y'all know that if you've ever been in sport. Well, that afternoon he ran us, and 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 he ran us, and, ran us. and I want you to know, and I hate to tell you this right before lunch, I threw up everything but my toes. I mean, I I thought I was going to die. I have never been so sick in all my life. It was years before I could eat another hot dog. And the coach was trying to get across to us, you've got to pay a price. But I like hot dogs. He said, okay, you want them, you'll get sick off of them. You've got to learn to make some choices. And any athlete understands his language. And that's what he's been trying to get across. Everyone who competes in the games. Now, if you pay a price in running, what Paul wants you to see is you also pay a price when you live the Christian life. God in no way spares us the pain of our choices. We've got to make those choices. And folks, I I, I, I may have said this last week, but when people get up and sing those songs sometimes, oh, sickness instead of health, oh, God, give me poverty instead of wealth, I'm thinking, good grief, man, do they understand what they just sung? I mean, it's painful, the choices we make in the Christian life. Nobody ever says it wasn't. You think it wasn't painful for Jesus in the garden when he chose to go to the cross for our sin? It was a painful thing and God does not in any way spare us that pain. When you make a choice and everybody looks at you like your elevator doesn't touch the top floor and they think you're absolutely ridiculous because you made the choice based on God's word, you're gonna have to receive the pain of embarrassment. You're gonna have to take the pain of ridicule. It just goes with the territory and God does not spare the pain of choice. Along with that pain comes the consequences That choice may bring. But when he speaks, you do what he says. That's it. You deny self. You don't ask any other questions. You just do it. And it's painful. That's a similarity to those running in the race, those living the Christian life. If you're trying to live this kind of life that's sometimes presented uh, in the media, and you want to name it and claim it and think everybody's going to be sweet and fluffy all of your life, you've heard a gospel that's not in the Word of God. It is painful to choose against self. But then thirdly, in verse 25, we see a major difference. A major difference, a similarity back to a difference. Whereas it's up to the runner in a race, it is not up to us in the Christian life, the way we run. It's not up to us. We make the choice, but the strength, that whereas a runner, it's up to his own strength, in the Christian life, it's up to Christ's strength in us. You say, where in the world is that? Look at verse 25. Everyone who competes, agonizome, in the games, exercises self-control in all things. Now that little word self-control is a familiar word. If you've ever studied what the Spirit of God produces in us that we cannot produce ourselves. It's the word ekratevome. It means to have power over something. You know where you find it? Galatians 5, 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Then you get to verse 23 and the last thing it says is self-control. It's something God gives us. This is different than being in an AA and, and, and somehow gritting your teeth and coming away from alcoholism. That's not what we're talking about. This is not determination, this is not willpower. This is God the Holy Spirit overcoming you and me. Victory is when Christ does this and when when we're able to say no to our flesh by saying yes to him and receive the joy in the midst of it even though the pain may be there. That's what God produces in us. So he doesn't spare us the pain of our choice but he enables us once the choice has been made. He even enables us in the choice. Once we have made the choice, then it's no longer us. We denied ourselves. it's Christ who lives in us. Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but what? Christ liveth in me. You see, in Philippians chapter 21, Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ. If you wanna know what's happening to me, it's not me, it's Christ in me. This is the fruit of the Spirit of God. Thank God, in a race, if that runner has a problem somewhere and grows weak. It's his fault, it's his strength. But in the Christian life, you make the choice, You, you go through the pain of denying self and God steps in, empowers you and takes you right on to the finish line. And when you stop, you shout and say, thank you, God. It wasn't me, it was you all the time. That's the difference in living the Christian life and running a race. Well, in verse 25, there's also a major difference in the prize that we receive. Verse twenty five says at the last part of the verse, then they they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. In Corinth the wreath that they'd give them was a pine wreath. Now you've got to realize nothing much is nothing is new under the sun, Ecclesiastes said. We do the same thing. They deified their athletes. Now I'm sure if they live today, they'd love to receive the salaries the athletes make <laughs> that we deify. But they deified them. Along with the wreath came fame and what they would say immortality, hero status. He's a winner. He did it, and, and of course, that just gave him all kinds of, of uh, popularity with the people, but that fame and that immortality was just as perishable as the wreath that they got. As Soon as another runner came along, you forgot all about him, but in the Christian life, it's not that way. The reward that we receive is imperishable. It's incorruptible, and one day when God gives it to us, we'll take it and lay it back at the feet of Jesus, and it'll remain forever to honor him and and it's never replaced by anyone down here. It's always given to him and it's always an eternal reward. So we see differences, similarities, differences, similarities, and it's, it's alluded to and it just teaches itself. I love the concept that Paul puts before them. To take the Christian life and compare it to running a race. The third thing, and this is where we left off the last time, is the challenge that Paul wants the Corinthian believers to receive. Now what we're gonna get this morning is a look inside of Paul's life. How did he live his life? Is there anything we can learn from the Apostle Paul? Yes, there are many things. You see, when you live your life in a consistent way, you point to something. You don't have to say a word. You can learn by the way another person lives their life. That's the way Paul was. When you learn the discipline of denying yourself, you become predictable, and predictability is what gives you your witness to others around you. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all the parents that were here today were so predictable their children could watch how they live and learn to live the Christian life simply by observing the parents? That's the way it was with the Apostle Paul. That's why he says many times, imitate my faith, do what I do. He's not saying, hey, look at me. No, he's just simply saying, I've, I've, I've learned something that may help you. I've learned the discipline of denying myself. Well, first of all, as he gives this challenge, look, look what he says in verse 26. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet, now that's not buffet, that's buffet, I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified, now the first thing he mentions is, he says, I run and I stay within bounds, and I have a goal out in front of me, I have learned this in living my Christian life, have you learned that this morning? You say, where did you find that, Wayne? Look, therefore I run in such a way, now he's gonna tell you what that such a way is, as not without aim. The word not there, there are two words for not in the Greek language. There's oo, which normally means absolutely, without any question, not. There's another word for not, me, M-E, or M-N, if you wanna transliterate, it. and that's the little word that means relatively not. In other words, sometimes, maybe not. But in this particular word, absolutely not in any way, shape, or form. He says, I do not run without aim. Now, the little word without aim is adelos, ah, without. And delos means uncertainty. In In other words, I don't run uncertainly. I don't run without resolution. But if you take that word and meditate on it for a while, and not to bore you this morning, it has the idea of running within bounds. When somebody plays a sport, there are rules that you go by. When you run a race, there are lanes that you run in. And the Apostle Paul says, I have learned something. I've got to stay in bounds. I've got to stay in the lane that God has given me. And I've got to keep the goal ahead of me. And that goal, what is the goal? The goal is that one day he can have Jesus look at him and say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He knows there's a reward coming, and that reward, it won't be for him, it'll be to give back to Christ, and he wants to stand there one day, unashamed in the presence of God. He keeps that as the goal in front of him. Everything he does is based upon that aim in his life. that reminds you of any scriptures? Philippians 3, 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's saying the same thing in Philippians. And when Jesus said in in Luke 9, 62, He says, but Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Do you realize when you learn to run in bounds, when you learn to keep the focus of your life being the finish line and where you're headed, when you learn to let that stay like it is, if you ever turn back, you're gonna get out of the lane and you're gonna lose sight of the goal that you're running towards. Of course, the boundaries for us is the word of God, the will of God. And the finish line, of course, is the same as Paul had. When we stand before Christ one day, we know that accountability is coming, that there's a reckoning day coming. And so when a person gets out of bounds and when a person loses their focus, that's what communicates to others he doesn't know what's going on. That's exactly what's going on in the Christian life these days. We'll fight somebody over the inerrancy of the word, but we won't let it dictate to our lives. Until we stay in the bounds of what the word of God says, stand upon what we know that God's will is, and keep our focus, and one day we'll stand before Christ, we're not gonna even understand the vision that God has for us. So Paul says, I have an aim. I don't run without aim. I know where I'm headed, and I'm gonna stay in bounds to get there. I have learned to do that. What was the lane that God had given him to run in? It was a ministry to the Gentile world. We're gonna get over to chapter 12. What's the lane God has put you to run in? What are your gifts, what's your calling? Where has God planted you? And all of a sudden that becomes a lane and all of a sudden his word begins to surround that. And all of a sudden you begin to see the focus at the end, the finish line. And you say, hey, this is all that matters. And so you learn the discipline of denying yourself so that you can pursue that goal and so that in the meantime you can stay within bounds. Then Paul says, not only that, matter of fact, remember Hebrews 12, one, I almost missed that. Therefore, he says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes upon Jesus. There's your goal. He says, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Do You realize he went to the cross for the joy of knowing he was pleasing his father, that was the ultimate motivation of his life, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So that's the way we run the race. That's what Paul wants them to see. He says, come on, Corinth, you're playing around with the flesh, you've attached yourself to everything but Jesus, you've lost your direction, you've lost your focus, you've lost your aim, come back to it. Choose the discipline of denying yourself. I know it hurts you, but God will enable you Get your focus back on the end of life, not just right now. Learn to live for eternity, not just for the present. Well, Paul says, I have that focus. But the second thing he says here is that he wastes no energy of the flesh, on the flesh. Verse 26. He said, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. You know what he's talking about here? It's shadow boxing. Have you ever been around somebody who's a boxer? I sparred with a heavyweight champion of Tennessee and Mississippi years ago when I was in college. That's why my face looks as bad as it does. I have 37 inch arms, sleeves, sleeve length. He had 39 inches. I learned the difference of two inches is a lot. The pain my nose felt because he could hit me when I, was, I thought I, I was an arm length away. That wasn't far enough. But you know, I noticed that shadow boxing, the way they would get themselves in, in it and stand there, nothing there. And they go, you know, they're throwing, constantly throwing and constantly using that energy on nothing. The Apostle Paul says, I don't shadow box, man. I don't waste any of my energy on the flesh. In other words, if I'm gonna take the energy to make a decision, it's gonna hit flesh right in the nose. Every decision I make is not gonna be a wasteful. I've learned to be a redeemer of the time. It wasn't it Paul that said, be a redeemer of the time. The word means to, to choose, to purchase time. What collateral do you use to purchase time? Choice. And Paul had learned to make the right choices, not to waste energy on the flesh, but to make everything, every choice count. Let it deal with that which would better make him fit to run the race. Every blow was a direct hit. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look in the next verse and it qualifies it. He says, but I buffet my body and make it my slave. lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be. Disqualify. The word buffet, as I said, was not buffet. Is <laughs> the word that expresses a discipline. It's the word epopiasso, to strike under the eye. Epo means under, and then piasso is to strike. To strike under, but to strike the eye. To bruise, to give a black eye. You know, one of the things that hit me is an application of this, and that is you can't hide a black eye. You can try all you wanna hide it, but you can't. Sweet lady that was in our church years ago, came out one Sunday morning, back when we only had one door so I could shake hands with everybody and they was walking out and she had, a, she had dark glasses on but I could see underneath those dark glasses there was something else and I'm thinking come on and she's an older lady and she said preacher will you talk to my husband he's beating on me again <laughs> she's just laughing of course what had happened was she had fallen down the steps but I thought all the pain she went through with makeup and sunglasses to cover up that bruised eye you can't do it And I thought of that as an application. You know, when we're choosing to to give a black eye to the flesh, every time the flesh rears up, just put it right back down. Learn the discipline of denying flesh. It's gonna start showing up and people are gonna start saying, whoa, I see a black eye. Yeah, I've been to the cross. Oh, I see another black eye. Yeah, I've been to the cross. And all of a sudden, that becomes part of your witness. Thank God for the black eyes when we put the flesh where it belongs. That's what Paul said he did. He said, I don't a box, buddy. I don't waste any energy on the flesh. Every choice I make puts it right where it belongs, gives it a black eye. Well, he goes on and says, to make it my slave. And the word slave there, to make it my slave, is a phrase. It's dula gogel. Thank you, Wayne. Dulos, slave, ago, to lead or to bring, to bring it up under submission. He said, every choice I'm making is trying, I'm trying to learn the discipline of bringing my flesh up under submission. You know one of the things I'm learning in my life? When I sit down without prayer, without the Word of God, and I make a choice about something, usually, usually it's wrong. Because my flesh goes exactly the opposite way of the Holy Spirit of God. That's what Paul said in Galatians 5. He says the flesh wars against the Spirit so that you might not do the things that you ought. So I've learned the first thought that comes to me, better be careful and get it back up under surrender to Christ Because usually he does it exactly the reverse of the way I would do it. So what seems logical to me is illogical to him. And so Paul said, I am learning that discipline and I'm putting a black eye to what my flesh wants. Sounds good, looks good, the committee said it was okay, but it's not what God wants. And I've learned to put a black eye to it. Bringing up under subjection. I've learned to let my choices bring my flesh under subjection. Matter of fact, in 2 Timothy when he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. When he says, I fought the good fight, I really believe he means I've won the battle over me and I've allowed God to finish through me what he started to do through me, but I had to learn the discipline of denying myself. You say, well, Wayne, how do I practice that? Oh, you just say, God, I wanna practice it. I'll guarantee you, he's got a ton of decisions this next week you can practice it in. This is as practical as breathing right now. Then Paul shows you the motivation for why he does this. He realizes that he has a goal in his life to preach the gospel of Christ. This is the lane that God has put in him. But why does he do all of this? Why does, he, why does he choose against his flesh to stay in that lane and to follow that goal? So he won't get benched, so he won't get benched. Verse 27, but I buffet my body, make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now that word disqualified throws some people, but you've got to understand his context. Paul in no way is talking about salvation. He is talking about really the process of sanctification. He's talking about usefulness once you're saved. He's not gonna jump back now and say that if he's disqualified, that means he loses his salvation. That is ridiculous and it's terrible hermeneutics to this particular context. What he's saying is to be unapproved means you're not fit to be used in something. And if you're an athlete, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Isn't it awful to sit on the bench Anybody ever played sport and had to sit on the bench? Says y'all won't raise your hand on about that because y'all are all stars. But I had to sit on the bench a lot. I was in Mississippi College. I backed up when I first went there. A center uh, that played 6'9", 6'9", I had really was about 6'10". Oh, he could dunk the ball so pretty. I really had the strain to do it. But I mean, he could just, I mean, effortlessly. I remember one night we played Samford, you know, Howard College back then, that's Samford University. And I remember we were behind about 10 points and Big Joe got the ball and man, I'd sensed it in, in, oh. And he sidestepped that big old boy, took one step and I mean, it looked like his legs were 10 feet long. And he jumped up and I mean, he came down, kaboom! And man, the whole place went wild. And I sat on the bench, cause he was so good. I didn't like sitting on the bench behind him. One night my sister came down from Virginia to watch me play I didn't tell her I hadn't been playing <laughs> Doing a lot of practicing Hadn't got on the court yet And that night just out of Providence I don't know if the coach found out she was there or not I didn't tell him, he let me play I remember coming down the floor, buddy They gave me the ball and nothing but net I said, Oh yeah, came back down Got the ball again, scored twice Got the rebounds, I was defending well And then all of a sudden a timeout And it took me out of the game I've got to talk to some of those coaches when we get to glory one day, if they're there. They're not going to make it, I don't think. <laughs> Why'd he take me out of the game? Man, that's the worst thing in the world is to be out there in the action and seeing what's going on and being a part of it and then suddenly be jerked off and sit on the bench. That's what Paul said. I don't want to start getting lazy about my Christian life, he says. I don't want to come to the place that I stop denying myself. I don't wanna come to the place that I leave the cross out of my vocabulary because if I do, God will jerk me off the playing field and sit me back on the bench and I'll sit and watch somebody else be usable by God. And I'll tell you something, folks, when you start seeing jealousy in ministries, I guarantee you, somebody that's not being used is jealous of somebody who is being used. You have just found somebody that Paul's writing to in Corinth. They're They're not willing to get off that fence They're not willing to come on and come to the cross and deny self and live it out and therefore they're not being used and they're jealous of the people that are on the floor. And that's where it comes from. Because if you're out on the floor, you're conscious of one thing, buddy it's painful to be out there on the floor, but it sure is a privilege. You're not worried about who's sitting on the bench. But if you're on the bench, you're griping about everybody else that's out on the floor. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has there ever been a time in your life that you love Jesus more than you love him this morning? Has there ever been a time in your life that you prayed more than you pray now? Has there ever been a time in your life that you studied the word of God more than you do right now? Well, friend, if you have somehow backed up instead of gone forward, then no wonder you're sitting on the bench. Stop blaming everybody else and come to the cross and Paul is saying, listen, live it out. Don't talk about it. Live it. And he gives you a million choices every day to do exactly that. Nobody wants to be benched. Of course, that's why we have the body of Christ to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to come alongside sometimes, to reprove one another. Why? To get them back on the floor. It's not like a basketball team It only takes five. Hey, you can put the whole Christian family on this floor if they'll just learn to deny themselves. The discipline of denying self for the sake of Christ and for others. So Paul gives us a concept a running, a race, and he helps them to understand living The Christian life is compared to a runner who wants to win the race. He gives comparisons that teach themselves that relate to the differences of the two, the similarities of differences. And then he gives them a challenge he wants them to receive. Run within your bounds and keep your focus. Don't worry about how he's running except to pray for him and exhort him. The way you help the guy run in his lane is to run in your lane like you're supposed to run. What happens most of the time, we get in somebody else's lane or forget which lane we're running in. Instead of just being about the things that God has put upon us and then to make sure you don't waste any energy. Make sure every choice you make is putting the flesh back where it belongs. Give it a black eye every time you make a choice and be careful so that you not be benched. Be careful so that you'll not be found unapproved. Well, then he moves to a caution that he wants to have. Now the context continues to flow. There were no chapters and that kind of thing. Somebody else put these chapters and verses in there. Chapter nine just flows right into chapter 10. It doesn't change a thing. He's gonna give an illustration now of the nation of Israel, the caution he wants them to have. And this is so very important. It's directly linked to verses 24 through 27. Look at verse one of chapter 10. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, now that word for, you say, Wayne, don't don't get into this. (laughs) I love it though, I love to go word for word. The little word for in the Texas Receptors in the majority text is the little word the, D-E, and it means but. It's a contrasting word, but it, it still links. But then the word used in the Nestles and other texts is the word gar, which means therefore or for. That's why it's translated that way in the American Standard. Now, you say, well, which one is it, Wayne? And I, I told you all that to tell you, doesn't matter. <laughs> go either way you want to go, because what it does, it links it back to what he just said, verse 24 through 27. You cannot disjoint chapter 10 from chapter nine, 24 through 27. Chapter 10 is continuing on with what he's teaching. Whichever one you prefer is fine. He says, for I do not want. And the word for want there is the word thelo, T-H-E-L-O. It's a little different from the word voulé, which means to wish. It's the idea, yes, it means to wish, and I desire and I want something for you. But it has more the idea to me as I study the word that I not only intend this for you, but I'm willing to do whatever's necessary to get in there to see make, to make sure it's worked out in your life. I'm not just telling you something, I'm gonna do something about it, and he's doing something about it by what he's about to bring up. He said, I don't want you, and I'm trying to tell you this, I'm doing something to keep you from something. He says, I do not want you to be unaware. The word unaware is the word agnoeo, it all ah, without, and then "noel" comes to the word understanding. I don't want you to be without understanding. It's interesting to me, what he's gonna bring up is is the stories that any believer probably in Corinth having had Paul as their teacher and Apollos as their teacher would have already heard and I would have thought understood. But Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant, brother. The idea I get is you know these stories, you know what happened to Israel, but I wonder if you've ever realized that what happened to them can happen to you. And I wanna make sure that you learn from them because the same mistakes Israel made you can make. Now as we get into this, remember, and I'm only going to say it a couple more times, he's not talking about salvation. And if you get lost in that, you're going to lose his whole point in chapter 10. It's a beautiful illustration of how Israel experienced many things together but then became arrogant in it just like at Corinth and because they kept, they stopped doing what they had been doing, they lost out on everything that God had for them. That's as simple as I can put it. That's where he's headed with his illustration of Israel. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, don't want you to be ignorant, that our fathers, and the word father, pater, is that paternal word that is universal in their language, fathers. However, it can be translated ancestors. Here, it's pointing back, obviously, to the spiritual fathers of Israel. Now, the audience that Paul is writing to is a Christian audience. You've got to understand that he knows the difference of a Jew, a Gentile, and a believer. He believes in three groups of people. Look in chapter 10, verse 32, I wanna show you that. He writes his his, his own words. He understands the difference of the Jew, the Gentile, and the believer. Look what he says in chapter 10, verse 32. He says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the what? To the church of God. Now, the church of God. You see, I hear a lot of people say they're completed Jews. That's fine if you wanna call yourself that, but I don't believe that's a proper terminology. I believe you're a brand new person in Christ. Ephesians says that both the Jew and the Gentile has been made into one new man. So if you're gonna make the Jew a completed Jew, then make the Gentile a completed Jew. I mean, they're, they're both made brand new. You're a brand new person, put all that other thing aside. You've been made brand new in Christ Jesus. He understands that. But again, he's illustrating his point of chapter nine. So he speaks of our fathers, in a sense, the Jewish spiritual fathers were spiritual fathers not only to the Jew but to the Gentile. In Galatians three fourteen it says, "In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith." So, in reality, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with his terminology, as he points back to the spiritual fathers of Israel. He's simply using an analogy of Israel, who, having been freed from slavery, delivered through the sea, provided for in the wilderness chose against what they knew would bring them what God wanted for them, and as a result of that, missed out on what God had for them. He begins by pointing to several things that all of them had experienced together. Now, this is kind of tough, but if you'll stay with me. If you put the Israel right here, you put the Christians right here. He's trying to say, now learn something from them. Learn something. This is his, this is his point of reference over here is Israel. All right? All of Israel experienced the divine providence of God. Their worthiness had nothing to do with it. It's just what God chose to show to them. All right, now watch. This providence, first of all, included direction. It says in verse one, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, all of Israel was under the divine protection and direction of God when they left Israel. Whether their obedience was what it needed to be or not, that's not the point. If they chose to follow Moses, then they were under the cloud. God put them under the cloud. You had the righteous and the unrighteous underneath that cloud. Had nothing to do with any worthiness on their part. It was the providence of God they experienced together. The word under is the word epo. It means exactly that. And the word were in tense, which has the idea God put them there. Nothing, they, they didn't get themselves there. God put them there. But they had to choose to follow Moses. If they followed Moses, he was under the cloud. So they were under the cloud. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. This references the Old Testament, Exodus 13, verse 21. It says, and the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. This whole mixed multitude that had chosen to follow Moses now were under the cloud. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. And that's how they were directed. That's how they were protected by God. He led them all out. His providence again had nothing to do with, with them, it was, his, it was him. You see, there was a general providence given to all, righteous and unrighteous. If you'll take that for a second and think on it, that comes right in the New Testament. Matthew chapter five, verse 45, and he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And I guess we could say about our mission team was going down to Nicaragua yesterday, and he puts smoke over Nicaragua so that the righteous and the unrighteous had to fly back to Houston and they had to leave today because they couldn't get down there. And hey, wait a minute, but we're a Christian. Uh Uh-uh. They all had to, to, to enjoy the same providence. God's providence is a general providence and it was over Israel. Some were righteous, some were not, but the cloud was over them and protecting them. But you see, within the general providence of God comes the narrow specific choices we make which determines whether or not we go on in enjoying his providence. Let me show you. Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter into it. He says in verse 21 of that chapter, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 18, 3, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Even though you'll enjoy my blessings, even though you'll enjoy a lot of my divine providence, until you make this choice, you'll never come into that which I have promised to you. So even when he led them out, there was a general providence of God. And that gave them direction. But the second thing I want you to see is that this providence of Israel also gave them deliverance. If the verse goes on. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Notice how many times that word all is used as we walk down. God not only put them under the cloud, God took them through the Red Sea. You now That's an interesting point, and if we had time to take off and chase a rabbit, but I won't. How many times you're under the divine providence of God and he brings you to a Red Sea in your life? <laughs> and you say, God, where'd you go? He says, nowhere, I'm right here, I brought you here. And then what they had to learn is his provision and how God would, would open that up, the seas up for him, you see. God providentially brought them right to that place. And then he providentially took them right through what they thought was an impossibility. He even parted the seas, brought them over into the wilderness. So not all the fathers were under cloud and all the fathers passed through the sea. They all passed. The verb there means they passed voluntarily. Nobody grabbed them and drug them across. They made a choice. Moses went through, we'll follow Moses. And And since Moses went through and they were with Moses, they passed through the sea. Now, what he's going to do with a vivid truth now is sum this whole thing up real carefully. He says in verse two, and all now watch this were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, <laughs> some of the Baptists say, "Well, brother, how, how do you baptize somebody into Moses? You can't." So get off that Baptist kick. The word baptism means immersion, yes, but it also means identification with. And so, in other words, they were identified with Moses. What do you mean by that? Well, listen. Some of you ladies, when you got married, did you remember how you left one kind of life and entered into another? And when you made the vows to walk beside your husband, you became a brand new person, took on his identity, and from that point on, you were a brand new person. You were in a brand new lifestyle. Just like it was with them. They lined up with Moses, they were under the cloud. They lined up with Moses, they went through the sea. Identified with him. And this is a picture of what's happened to you and I. If you just look at Israel, they were delivered, They were baptized, brought into the land, provided for. Same thing in our lives. And it's what the picture he's drawing here is. We have been identified with Christ. We have gone through death. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. We've come out on the other side. We've enjoyed his provision. So so far you see the similarities of the two. And he's saying learn from Israel, learn from Israel. And so far you haven't much to learn from because we've experienced the same thing. We've been delivered from the penalty and the power of sin brought through and on the other side, we're brand new creatures. We're identified with Christ. But where he's headed is this. After a while, the high privilege of their experience was turned away from and they turned and went another way and lost out on everything that God had for them. And that's what he's trying to say to the Corinthian church. Don't bail out. The way you received the blessing so far has been by denying yourself, surrender to his will, faith in him and his word. Don't ever come to the point that you choose to go another way. If you do, you're going to forfeit the things that God has for you. You're going to miss out. You're going to be benched. That's his whole purpose in bringing this out. You see, the same attitude that gets you in, the same attitude that sustains you, the same attitude that brings you down here. And that's faith. That's surrender. And that's just why Paul says you've got to learn the discipline of denying yourself. It never changes. That's why Colossians says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. In other words, the same way you bowed before him then, continue to bow before him every day. Keep coming to the cross. Take the low road. Take the low road. And God then will bless you in the ways you want to be blessed. Well, i got to quit. We didn't get that far into chapter 10. We'll come back and back up and hit it again. Let me share this with you. The other day, Diane and I were out riding. Do any of y'all do that? That's kind of our hobby other than eating. We buffet our body quite often. And, uh, <laughs> but we were out riding. And we got to a subdivision out in this area. And I, evidently, I must, worry about being I didn't know all these things had popped up. And I said, look at this subdivision. And it was really pretty, had a fountain popping up, you know, and had big gates. And I said, let's ride in there and see what it looks like. We drove up to the gates and the gates were locked. And there was a code there on the side that you had to punch in to get into it. Secret code. I'm thinking, oh, who are the uppity-doos that live in here? And on the sign it said, homes in here, as if to warn you, begin in the high 200s and go way up into the three and 400s. And then it had all these rules of getting in. I'm thinking, yeah. So we turned around and was pulling out and Diana said to me, she said, you know, isn't it wonderful that heaven is not like this subdivision? Isn't it wonderful that when you drive up to the gates of heaven, (laughs) there's not a price you have to pay? Isn't it great that God's already paid that price? Isn't it wonderful that it's not up to any of my ability, but just my availability to bow before him, put my faith in Jesus Christ, and God rescues me and ushers me into that place? And do you realize salvation came as a gift of God? And do you realize the same choice that caused you to have it is the same choice that keeps you sustained in it? And that's what he's telling Corinth. Man, why in the world are you attaching yourself to everything but Christ? Don't you know the discipline of denying yourself for the sake of others? And until you come back to it, you're like a runner who's lost his direction, who's lost his bounds. He's not in point anywhere. That's what's happening to families all over our country today. They've lost direction. They don't know who they are anymore. They've forgotten what it took to get saved. They forgot what it took to be sanctified. And we live after the flesh. And what's the result of it? Division, strife, problems in the body of Christ from people who won't deny themselves.